Well, we've started a new series here at Maricopa Springs that we're calling Heartbeat. And the goal is for us to just delve into the mission and the values of our church to help us see how the heartbeat of Maricopa Springs Family Church lines up with God's heartbeat revealed in Scripture. And there's so much more to the purpose behind Maricopa Springs than just carrying out a moralistic religious duty to go to church on Sunday morning. We're here as the body of Christ. We're helping to carry out God's redemptive purposes for the world that he crafted and created and loves dearly. And so we are an expression of his mission and his values. Excuse lately. Now it's on. Aaron, let me just have that one just in case. We tried to test it before the service, but not sure exactly what's going on. All right, we'll try. Um, so this morning, we're going to look at the core value of worship at Maricopa Springs. We have 10 core values, and we're going to start with this one. And our church exists to bring God worship. That's one of the things that we are about. And I think John Piper puts this eloquently in his book, Desire. Some of you are noticing that you have notes in your bulletin, and so if you want to follow along with me this morning, I would love for you to do that. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper says, God is the greatest thing that exists, ever has existed, or ever will exist. Therefore, for us to glory anything else would be sin, and there is nothing greater than God. There is no calling greater than praising God. This is true not only for us, but surprisingly also for God himself, he being the greatest, to glory in anything else would be idolatry. Therefore, if the greatest thing that God can do is give himself glory, and what no created thing does can be greater than God, the greatest thing we can do, or our purpose, you might say, is to glory him. The reason I gave you that in notes is because that's kind of something for you to chew on. You could read that several times before it begins to really settle. But God gives glory to himself. You might say that God worships himself. And because God is the greatest thing, this is good. It's right. It is the way that it should be. And if God were to worship something other than himself, that would be sin. God cannot do that. It's just not even a possibility. God worships God and God alone. And to share in the wonder and the joy of worshiping God then for his glory, God created creatures to join him in worship. And how wonderful a thought that is, truly, that God desiring to share the immeasurable joy of worshiping God chose to create for himself creatures to experience that joy as well, creatures made to worship him to know his glory. And that's you, that's me. I'm, I'm not talking about creatures, I'm talking about us, right? We were made to experience the fullness of giving God glory and worship for his perfection, his beauty, his surpassing greatness. Okay, but something in here went terribly wrong, right? These creatures, you and I, we rebelled. And rather than be satisfied worshiping the greatest thing, which is God, the giver of life, Instead, these creatures made to worship God instead decided that it would be better to worship other things, lesser things. 
Romans 1, maybe you're familiar with it, says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so the human heart was made for worship. Your heart was literally created to give God glory and to praise Him. But sin has caused us to substitute our worship for the one true God with worship for all kinds of silly and ridiculous things, okay? And maybe you've been burned by one of these things in the past, and so you know personally what this feels like. But worship is everywhere. The student worships achievement and so seeks good grades. The politician worships power and so vies for your votes. The sluggard worships entertainment and wastes away his day playing video games or watching TV. The woman worships beauty and tries so hard to look like the woman on the magazine cover. The man worships sex and finds himself in all kinds of devious behavior. The child idolizes, forgive me, the child idolizes the parent and so tries to emulate them. The athlete worships competition and invests their life in it. The Republican glorifies freedom and pursues it. The Democrat worships equality and fights for it. Americans idolize comfort and they seek it left and right. And the world bows down before a pantheon of false gods that looks like all kinds of things. And the human heart was made to worship, and so it makes idols and... It's okay. Even good things, good things, when they become the object of our worship, they end up taking on the tyranny of idols to oppress and even eventually enslave the human heart. So at the very core of what it means to be human is this little acknowledged fact, I think, in our world, that every person was made for worship. But sin has broken us so that we worship the wrong things. So I guess you could say at Maricopa Springs, we have a value for remedying this very important problem. To do what's right, to help people find this true purpose for which they were created. To offer people this very simple truth. Your heart will find its deepest affection and satisfaction and fulfillment in worshiping God. And there can be no substitute for him as the focus of your life. Because the human heart, it wasn't just made to worship anything. Not anything will do in this place of importance. The human heart was created by God to give God glory. And it will never be satisfied with anything less than him. But there's a slight problem here, I think. And I've never seen God. Hey, Don, can you bring this down just a little bit? I've never seen God, so how can I know what it means to worship him if I've never seen him? God is not here for me now to know. His beauty that I'm talking about, it's not observable to me on, in daily life. So how can I know that he is glorious? And one of the reasons that I think it's so easy for us to settle for worshiping idols and false gods is that they're so accessible, aren't they? They're tangible, they're knowable. They've been revealed. They're all around us. How can I worship a God who I cannot see and I struggle to know? Well, God, I think, has solved this problem for the hearts that long to know and worship him. Turn with your Bibles, or turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 28. 
Matthew 28 is an often quoted passage of Scripture, and if you uh, look closely, you might notice here that our mission as a church is woven through these verses. Helping people meet and follow Jesus comes directly from Matthew 28. So let me read Matthew 28, and I'm going to read 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus commands his followers to go out into the world and tell people about him, to do evangelism. We talked some about that last week. And upon telling them about Jesus, he then tells his followers to teach them what it means to observe what he commands, to, to be obedient as disciples. Okay, but why do this? What's so special about Jesus specifically that we should tell people about him? That we should want them to become obedient to him? Well, I think the engine behind this great mission is found in verse 17. So look there with me if you have your Bibles open. And I'm actually going to read 16 and 17. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. Okay, on a side note, just this phrase here, some of them doubted, uh, is just an astonishing idea, like just slipped into the text there. The fact that some of Jesus' disciples, after seeing him brutally crucified, buried, and risen from the dead, now in the flesh, standing in front of them, just blows my mind. It speaks to the stubbornness of the human heart to worship the one true God. Okay, but my real point is this. After seeing his death and resurrection, the disciples, they worshiped Jesus. You have to understand really how problematic this idea is. For a bunch of Jews to worship a man named Jesus creates a massive, massive problem. And this is a big no-no for Jews. Unless, of course, Jesus is, in fact, the very same one true God who created the human heart, who the Jews themselves had always been worshiping. The one to whom all praise and glory and adoration for now and eternity belongs only. So God's solution to our problem is to show us himself. His solution is to reveal himself in terms that we can, in fact, understand. Terms we can see so that we can come to know God. I think that there are many incredible proofs to the validity of Christianity, the legitimacy of the faith that you believe. If you're curious about those, I would love to speak with you about them. But a very significant proof is what happened in Judaism in the early days of Christianity, okay? Jews, since the days of Abraham, had always worshipped this God, the God of Israel, the one true God. And we can go back to what's called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And these are words that were often recited by Jews in worship of God. A constant reminder that there is one God, and only this one God is worthy of worship. And so a Jew raised into this kind of worldview had a difficult time trying to even comprehend the idea that other people might worship a multitude of gods, a pantheon of gods. 
And so offensive was this idea to Jews that it's precisely one of the reasons that Jesus ended up crucified. The Jewish leaders accused him of blasphemy when he claimed that he was God. And when Jesus said that he was God, they wholeheartedly rejected the idea on the basis that there could be only one God. And so holy and revered was this God that he could never be a man. That would be condescending. And so Jews at first rejected Jesus with disdain and astonishment because there was no way that he could be Yahweh, the one true God. And he couldn't be Yahweh because Yahweh is transcendent. Yahweh would never step down into his own creation in the form of a man. It was ludicrous. There was simply no category for which that they could accept this idea. To put it in modern, modern terms, hey, Don, can you just bring the gain down a little bit more? I can hold it close. To put this in modern terms that you might understand because it's all over the news lately, Muslims are fiercely monotheistic, right? They believe in one God, Allah. Now imagine that you were to find yourself sitting across the table from ISIS and they have gently invited you to make a case for what you believe. And so you explain to them that there is a man and his name is Jesus and this man is also the one true God that they're searching for. Now, in their worldview, this would be an untenable position. It's not even a possibility for them to comprehend. They have no category by which they can accept this idea. It is impossible as far as they are concerned. So if they were to then tell you, we believe, we too want to worship this God, Jesus, and become Christians then you would have to admit that by some divine miracle of God, something had happened. A miracle among the lines of water turning into wine instantaneously. These people would never accept the idea on their own. It just does not happen. Okay, unless these Muslims were to have a truth revealed to them, unless they were to somehow, by the miracle of God, see without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus, in fact, is God, one with the Father. The only way they could possibly come to believe such a worldview-shattering change in what they believed would be if it was absolutely true and they became absolutely convinced by some amazing revelation of evidence. And this is precisely the situation that the Jews in er in the early days of the church found themselves in. For Jesus to be God, ridiculous idea, we covered that. They rejected it with scorn and disdain. And yet, Jews, by the thousands in the early days of Christianity, gave their lives to Christ shortly after his resurrection. They believed that he was God. And how could it be? How could a people so fiercely committed to the idea that there is one God now worship this man, Jesus? Well, it was because they saw the glory of Christ. And they recognized that it was the same glory as the Father that they had known. So they worshipped him as the same God, the revelation of the Father. They heard Jesus' word in John 14, 9, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And they recognized it to be true. So, sort of in summary, God creates the human heart to worship him and him alone. But man rebels and gives glory to worthless idols and crummy false gods. 
Yet God, in His glorious grace, desiring to redeem a people for His own name's sake, sends His Son Jesus, the exact representation of the Father, to show mankind that God is worthy of worship, and in Him alone is the human heart satisfied and our sinful condition ultimately remedied. God knew we couldn't find Him on our own, on our own terms, so He revealed Himself in Jesus. Okay, so how do we know Jesus is worthy of worship? How can we be sure that Jesus is the same one true God? How can we be certain that it's Him we should worship, and in worshiping Jesus that we are actually giving glory to the Father? How do we know He's not just a man, but that He's God? Uh, A couple of authors have written this book that I'll summarize for you so you don't have to read all 300 pages of it. In their book, Putting Jesus in His Place, Bowman and Kemizowski, I don't even know how to say his last name, they show us that Jesus is worthy of worship. And I thought this was wonderful, so I wanted to pass this on to you. They use this acronym, a tool that I think is helpful, and they, hands, maybe you have seen this before. Hands. Five descriptions given to Jesus that belong to God alone. And if you're the note-taking type, this is where you get to fill in the blanks and feel satisfied. So as we think about worship this morning, I want us to go through these five things together, okay? H stands for honor. I'm just going to give you one quick example for each of these. Jesus is given honor that belongs to God the Father exclusively. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall worship no other God because the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to John chapter 5 real quick. I want you to see this. John 5, 23. Here we see Jesus say something astonishing about himself, a claim that he makes. He says in verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So how could a jealous God who refuses to share his glory with another, how could he allow the worship of Jesus unless Jesus is God himself? With a God who is so jealous for his glory that he allows it to be recorded in the most read book in the history of humankind, would that God tolerate sharing worship that is due to him? Never. The resounding answer is no. So if you want to honor God, if you want to worship him, if you want to know what he is like, then you have to look no further than Jesus, who shares the glory of the Father. And when you worship Christ, the Son of God, then you bring glory to the Father. And if you want to know God whom you cannot see, if you want to grow intimately acquainted with Him, then grow intimately acquainted with Christ whom you can see. Next, A in hands. A stands for attributes. Jesus shares all of the qualities and characteristics of God. 
For the sake of time, I'm just going to give you one example. We say that God is immutable, which is just a fancy way of saying that God is unchanging. If he made a promise 10,000 years ago, you can be sure that today he will keep it, and 10,000 years into the future, it will still be upheld. If God is good yesterday, then we know that he is good today, and he will be good tomorrow. We can trust that. He's reliable. He's consistent. He's not like you and me where we wake up one day on the wrong side of the bed, and so we're nasty and mean, and we wake up the next day feeling good, and so we're kind and gentle. We're in process constantly changing. God alone is immutable and unchanging. And so the Old Testament says in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change, an attribute which belongs to God alone. And then in Hebrews 13.8, we find that it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Jesus deserves all worship and glory and praise because he shares the very same attributes of God the Father. Next, N stands for names. Names. Jesus, he has the same descriptive titles and names given to him that belong to God alone. And I've already made it quite clear that the Bible proclaims a monotheistic worldview. There is one God. And so it's striking then that Jesus would share some of the same names as this one true God. I'll just point you to one in John 20, 28. I'll make you turn there since you're pretty close already, right? John 20, 28. Thomas, who somehow unfortunately receives this title as Doubting Thomas. How would you like to be known as Doubting Thomas for all eternity? Doubting Thomas in John 20, 28, upon seeing the wounds that Jesus has in his hands and his sides, he exclaims in verse 28, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Again, Thomas, a devout Jew, he sees no problem using these exclusive terms, Lord and God, to refer to Jesus. He worships Christ by calling him Lord. D, D stands for deeds. Some of you are like, wait, what did I, D stands for D? Deeds. Jesus does the very same things that God alone can do. Again, a multitude of examples, but Colossians chapter 1, we looked at this leading up to Christmas. Colossians 1.16 says that through Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. But we all know the act of creation, taking nothing and forming it into something, that's an act that only God himself can do. Who else could share in that? So we see that Jesus is present and active participating in creation, carrying out the very same deeds of God the Father. What an incredible idea that we now can look back at Genesis 1 and know that Christ was there in creation. Finally, S, it stands for seat. Jesus, seat. Jesus occupies the same seat of power and authority as God. In the book of Revelation, John sees this vision of the new Jerusalem in heaven. I'm going to make you turn there with me. It's the last time. Revelation 22. It's almost the very last page of your Bible. 
John, writes, writing the book of Revelation, he sees this vision of the new Jerusalem in heaven. And he describes this river of life starting in chapter 22 by saying that it flows from the throne of, the Lamb, of God and the Lamb. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. This is a striking statement, the throne of God and of the Lamb, that God shares His throne of power and authority with the Lamb, which is another name for Jesus. Yes, because Jesus is God himself, a unique person within the Trinity, within the Godhead, yet also being one with God the Father, which is why we see then a little bit later this idea that they share the throne. Now, I tell you all of this. Why? The reason is so that as you read your Bible, you can notice all of the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of places where Jesus is given the same kind of honor, attributes, deeds, names, and authority as God himself. So that you can worship him for this wonderful mystery that somehow Christ is both God and man. Jesus, the man who walked the earth and suffered like we suffer, hungered like we hungered. This Jesus is also the one true God that the Jews worshipped through history. And even as we sing songs, which is an act of worship, your heart can delight in the words that come from your mouth, exclaiming the glory of God in Christ Jesus. These truths, I think, should cause our hearts to leap in worship to God. Okay, but here's the rub, and I'm just going to end with this thought. You can't fake worship. Maybe if you're married, you know that in experiencing love between your spouse, you, you can't fake this thing, right? You can't fake worship. The truth is, you can know all of this stuff in your head, but until you meet this God, until you become intimately acquainted with Him, your heart is not going to love and praise Him. Last week, my family and I, we went to Disneyland, and we had a blast while we were there. And for a few weeks leading up to the trip, I kept telling my kids how amazing Disneyland is, right? I'm a huge fan, so I talked it up. It's, it's awesome, right? The happiest place on earth. It is a blast. But no amount of telling my kids how fun Disneyland is, no amount of me describing it to them could live up to the experience of actually being there, right? Talking about Disneyland and experiencing Disneyland are two totally different things. Now, this may be a silly illustration, but hopefully you kind of get the idea. The same principle applies with God. I can tell you why God is worthy of worship until I put you to sleep in that incredibly hard chair. I can describe the attributes that make him beautiful. I can describe the attributes revealed in Scripture that make him wonderful. I can tell you all about the deity of Jesus 
and why He's worthy of worship, to receive praise and glory because His name is above all other names, and He sits on the throne of God. I can use words all day long to tell you those things, but a lifetime of describing those things hardly compares to just one moment of experiencing intimacy with Him. And true worship begins to happen when we feel the loving embrace of God, when we begin to see His glorious face, when we know the depth of His grace, when we experience the joy that comes with His nearness. And no words can describe the way the heart leaps when God makes, him known, makes Himself known to us in the deepest places of our hearts. And so for me to describe Him to you, it pales in comparison to entering into His presence. And truly, I, I can't even take you into His presence. I'm not even capable of doing so. But God can draw you into His presence. He can do that now, and He can do that more and more each and every day as you walk with Him into and throughout eternity. I can't take you there, but God can draw you there if you're willing to go and you're bold enough to ask Him. I can't talk Maricopa Springs into being a church that worships God, but God can transform us into a church that loves to worship Him with wholehearted devotion.